Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Edmund Crispin's The Moving Toy Shop one more time. In fact, we are answering your questions about The Moving Toy Shop. We had some questions posted on the Substack page and a few sent in via email. And so we'll spend a little bit more time with this book. Uh, how are you guys both doing before we get into the questions? I'll ask that question. Heidi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I feel like when we say our names at the top of the show, like Sean, you have the best inflection out of all three of us. It's only like because the way I come you last. Say I'm Sean Johnson. Like every time I'm like, I like I that. feel the weight of being badass. at the end of the list. If I wasn't at the end, it would be different. Yeah, you I wanna... mean, mine's just so vanilla. It's like pumpkin spice latte inflection. I'm Heidi White. And then <laughs> well, you just come the, in there. And like, I'm with, Sean. He's a period. I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not just, it's like, like a fancy period. <laughs> a colon. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know periods. what it is. but One on top of each other. <laughs> it's very, it's like a pinkies out. Pinkies period. out. Yeah. And oh, I'm right, anyway. Sean Johnson. Yeah. No, don't do that again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's how I'm doing. I'm doing great. Just a little bit envious of my colleague and his inflection. Let me let's do this again. Or maybe just admiring it. I'm not envious. I'm just admiring it. Here, let's let's see what it would sound like if Heidi's third. I I can't do it. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I'm David Kern. And I'm Sean Johnson. No, you can't say and if you're second. No. Okay, that I, the I, I never. I don't go second. Now. I haven't practiced. Let's do it again. Do it okay. again. All right. Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Sean Johnson. And I'm Heidi White. See, there it, we go. When you, with the adding <laughs> that, the and, it, it does. It does. It, it does. Heidi White. Yeah. 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 Yep. 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 All right. I, I think it's not you. It's really not even a yeah. Sean. It's just right. The uh, Being last. It's, yeah. Anyway, good job, Sean. Well done. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if anybody like how does Tim's and I'm Tim Macintosh, yeah, differ from his and I'm sure. Anyway, that's not what here what we're here to discuss. We'll find we are out here to enough. discuss the moving toy shop. That's right. Um, our next book is uh, a canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. Walter Miller, right? Walter Miller. Yeah, I've never read it. I'm so excited to read it. Woo! Uh, Sean, this is a big book for you, Sean, isn't it? I really like it. Yeah. So. It's- it's uh, you know bewildering sometimes, but I really like it. Oh, I'm interested. Yeah, that was a good hook for me. <laughs> bewildering was all it took. Things that bewilder Sean will surely get me lost in the murk of existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Give me too much credit, but we'll see. Well, uh, we will be beginning that book next week. Sean, do you recall? I think it's the first three. You know what? Sean, you look for that while I read the ad read here in a second, and yeah, we'll confirm right. what chapters we're doing next. You can also check yeah. the uh, October-November update over on closereads.substack.com. But just want to remind you that this month, uh, the show is brought to you by our friends over at Ecstasis Magazine. Uh, I've said it before, but I'm going to uh, just just drop this in here at the beginning. Their link is ecstasismagazine.com, and you should go check them out. It is a digital cathedral of sorts, helping a generation of Christians admire beauty and tune their spiritual and aesthetic affections. They aim to arouse the aesthetic affections of Christians by inviting and empowering them to be creative. They're nurturing the future of Christian writers and all sorts of creative people through an annual print journal, uh, monthly digital collection, ambassador program, Ecstasis Cafe events, digital cathedral uh, through their social media, and... The way they see it is where social media flattens, Ecstasis aims to deepen and meet people 
where they seek inspiration, merging the heart of beautiful orthodoxy, a poetic lens of faith, skillful storytelling, and visual levity. Uh, so they're doing some great work, and we were honored to be partnering with them this month. It is, uh, again, ecstasismagazine.com, and check them out on on all of their social media channels as well. They've got a great Instagram. Uh, you know, you can follow them on Twitter, you can follow them on, on uh, Facebook. I think visually they do some some fun things with Instagram. And of course, check out their 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 uh, journal as well, their print journal, which is always yeah, uh, high quality. Uh, you know, I mean, there's only a few journals that I and magazines these days that I'm really committed to keeping around. And one of the things that matters to me is how does that journal feel? You know, in your hands, like is it something you're gonna throw away right away? Or you know, or, or like if there's a good article in it, are you just gonna rip it out? You know, like the New Yorker, not to throw the New York, I mean, we're never going to get the New Yorker to sponsor now, but sometimes it's a little flimsy, right? They're publishing them that so often, they're, they're doing it more cheaply. So if there's an article yeah. I like, I will tear it out and I might eventually, after a few months, I'm going to toss them away. But really nice journals are like books where you keep them around, even if there's only one or two essays or articles in them that you love. And I think Ecstasis, Ecstasis's <laughs> magazine, uh, their print their print uh, operation is, is really high quality. So yeah, thanks to them. Okay, Sean, uh, what were the chapters for? Well, that would be one through eight, David. One through eight. All right, thank you. Thank you for that uh, fine <laughs> fine delivery that you offered there Come as well. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so we are going to here to answer some um, questions about the moving toy shop. And we are a um, little inside baseball here. After this, we're going to be recording on Kristen's Laverne's daughter. So my brain is a little bit... Um, it's the there's some wires being crossed here in terms he of means my five plans. minutes after this. Just yeah. So we're clear. When this yeah. is over. Yeah. <laughs> we are immediately going to be recording about Kristen Laverne's daughter. That's just how the week worked out. So, so my, my brain is a little bit uh, scattered when it comes to uh, the themes. And so hopefully if I, if I randomly ask, there, but we'll, if I ask some, yeah, but you know, when you're thinking through how to, who to ask different things ahead of time and all that. If I randomly ask Heidi something about Kristen Laverne's daughter, well, that would be embarrassing, but that's why. Okay. But we'll handle it. It's forgivable. Here's a, here's a question from Coley that I thought was a good one. Coley, a, a longtime listener. Good um, friend of ours. That's right. Coley. She, she comes, well, she moved, but she used to come into the bookstore pretty often. Okay, so she said... Episode one sparked a question in me. We are all delighted by the literary references and the charm of this book. However, there was a lot of criticism of A Gentleman in Moscow for the same things. As someone who thoroughly enjoys both books, I'm curious what the difference is. Obviously, there are many differences between the books. I'm not suggesting they're really similar at all. What I mean is, why does the charm and intentional bookishness work for one and maybe not for the other? Now, I'll just add that I think probably that bookishness and intentional charm works in both cases on people to different degrees in it for both of these books. Like for some people, that is the win one of the winning aspects of A Gentleman in Moscow. But I think that was it was something that we maybe if there was a if you know that was maybe one of the criticisms that we said is it didn't always work in A Gentleman in Moscow. Heidi, what do you think of this? I'm just way more forgiving of a gentleman in yeah, Moscow. Yeah, I was gonna say that's why I asked you first. Yeah. Um <laughs> But I think it's a, it is a good question. And I think it's partly because of the setting of Oxford versus house arrest and the metropole. Yeah. I think um, under decades yeah, of Soviet oppression. Yeah. And, yeah. There's there needed to be a weight 
to a gravitas to gentlemen in Moscow that sometimes I I think that Amor Tolls missed the opportunity to to bring to the to the book. Um, whereas a romping comic murder mystery jaunty uh, as Sean yeah, calls it. Jaunty, <laughs> jaunty. exactly. Um, may not need that same level of gravitas, which I think raises the question, why are murder mysteries not more like why 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 do they work in just purely comic? It's about death. Um but again, I think we've talked we've talked some about that, that a murder mystery really a detective story really is a comedy, right? Um and yeah, in the end, yeah. 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 Um but a gentleman in Moscow really did need the counterpoint of a of a willingness to enter into the tragedy that's given to us in the story and i think amartos didn't always do that although i was a little bit more forgiving of it than other critics that's my answer john do you have any thoughts on this it's pretty similar to what heidi said i think that uh there are different ways to be uh What's the adjectival uh, form? Uh, il- elusive, not elusive, but <laughs> to be el- illusionary. <laughs> and it works in the moving toy shop because the novel doesn't take itself so seriously. So whether or not Amor Tolls always succeeds in achieving the gravitas that he needed, uh, I think on the whole, uh, maybe he's taking his project more seriously. Uh, and so yeah. um, there has to be if you're going to if you're going to rely on illusion in in a serious project, it has to be more atmospheric and less on the nose. Yeah, yeah. The, the other th- I mean, I think she uses the word charm and bookishness in this. And I think that in A Gentleman of Moscow, it's like being intentionally charming and bookishness bookish whereas here it's not not being intentionally charming and bookish but it's also actively trying to make tell jokes right like, it's about comedy it's about being funny and so like woodhouse when woodhouse mentions romeo and juliet or something like that it's less about being about romeo and juliet and more about having fun at romeo and juliet's expense you know That's it's right. about the joke that your story is connected to and so i think uh, a moving toy shop is a is a book where that charm and that bookishness comes in the form of bits and gags and jokes, whereas the gentleman of Moscow is being actively charming and active. Like he is he is sort of aware of the charmish the charm that he is offering. And I think that's part of his, I don't know, his plan, his project, if you will. I don't like to use that word too often with authors, but he is trying to offer charm and the value of things like books and food and wine in the face of great difficulty and trauma. And so that's part of what makes it winning for a lot of people is does it sometimes cause it to feel not as heavy as it perhaps ought to have? That's, yeah, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I think that's also what he's acting, he's trying to, he's trying to be, offer a a sort of hope in the midst of a storm. And so that's where the, I, I, that's where it comes from. So I think they they have we have a charm and a bookishness to use Coley's words that are coming from they're like plant they're like it's like when you have 
they might both be flowers, but they come from a different seed or they're grown in a different way, like a wildflower. But what's something that's not a wildflower? I don't know. A rose? <laughs> An orchid. <laughs> maybe <makes. laughs> it's maybe maybe Amor Tolls has planted roses all around his book's home. Whereas in the moving toy shop, it's like a field of wildflower jokes. I don't, you know, you're just going to have to roll with me on this one, but <laughs> you know, genus species difference here, yeah. maybe. <laughs> Amor Tolls just wants to give you a kiss from a rose. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Heidi, save, save us. You're muted though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't get you out of this one. We're just gonna have to move on. That's what's so great about the Q and A. The Q and A, Transition on. <laughs> to the next question. Have I commented yet? How uh, jaunty is like really close to the like? It could you could easily call it shanty. Have we mentioned that yet? Like, <laughs> Sean, Sean. Yeah. Anyway. I hadn't noticed that before. Um, shanty. Okay, here's one from Emily. Not gonna um, catch on. Uh, she says no question just a comment I haven't finished the book or the second podcast so maybe this was covered but what a weird way to unravel the mystery I kept checking my Kindle percentage read percentage read to see if I was at the end or not it feels like the end with 33% left to go so that is phrased as a comment but it also could be taken as a question we did talk about it a little bit do, do we need to put a you know like put a period on that conversation or just add anything to it that he I think that Sean is the one we want for periods on conversations yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, go ahead, Sean. Uh, we did talk about it a little bit, but it, yeah, we it did could talk be about worth, it too extensively. Yeah, revisiting we because uh, I, I think I made a similar comment in the second episode that I felt like uh, I was very surprised by how much of the mystery we understood before entering the final act. The majority of the of the fifth act of the book was the manhunt. And so there were some red herrings. Uh, the, the book agent uh, for a while seemed like he could be caught up in it, but the toy shop mystery itself, the locked room mystery ended up being kind of a, a nothing burger. <laughs> you find out halfway through what's going on there. Uh, so I, I can, I can sympathize uh, when you get to, yeah, that. Uh, 66% mark and it seems like there's not much to do except catch the last guy and throw him in jail it's just it's oh just but it's another, worth it and it's just another example of the the way that books tell you what they're trying to do right we talk about that all the time it yep. kind of reveals that it's not about you know unraveling the mystery as much as it is about like hanging out <laughs> yeah it's like Anna Karenina dying you know with a whole book to go in hold in on what book. oh spoiler alert Heidi, do you, uh, you want to add <laughs> you're muted i keep sitting on mute um which probably protected sean from my exclamation of disgust at giving away anna Karenina's <laughs> death i guess everybody dies so oh, right? I mean, the books are really it's old been, yeah it's been yeah. 150 years yeah everybody in that book right. is dead um or they're yeah, more I alive mean, I, than ever. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Or more puzzle, alive than ever. The puzzle is just all. not the strongest part of the story. But uh, after after we find out who the murderer is, there's still so much more delightful content in the book. 
Yeah. So that's, it's just fun. Like you just got to be along for the ride in a story that's not told in a traditional or an expected or conventional way. Um, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think in this book, it works great. So, so yeah, I think that's a like, feature. Not okay. A I'm romping. I'm jaunting. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're jaunting people. So uh, having read it again, you know, this time through and, and thinking about it more and then thinking about Crispin's work as a whole, I really think that we can say that the, like to your point, the, as we've discussed, the puzzle is not the strongest point, but I kind of think that he is like sort of doing that on purpose. Like, I don't still think he cares about, like he's not trying to create a puzzle that is complicated. So I don't think it's like he set out to create a puzzle and then did a bad job with it. I think he sets you up or he uses a lot of mystery tropes and then he kind of like, he counts on your expectation and then upends them. And that's what kind of makes it fun. You know, you know, that you, there's one of his books that he plays with, you know, uh, the case of the gilded fly. There's a question about this. The question is, um, Meg, if the puzzle aspect of this novel was the weakest element, what other Crispin novels might be better as far as the mystery plot goes? So there's a book that I like called the case of the gilded fly. And I believe that's a King Lear illusion, isn't it? The gilded fly. I don't know. Reference. I have that book, but I haven't read it yet. Sounds good. So that one plays with a bunch of Agatha Christie tropes and detective tropes, even more so, like more obviously, like the idea of you know how at the end of a lot of uh, the Poirot books they gather they are, you all and end up in they a room, gather all the suspects and then, and then and the Poirot, detective yeah, gives exactly. this like monologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Anthony Horowitz plays with that now too. Mm-hmm. I, um, Crispin very purposefully plays with that and kind of. I'll just tell you, he kind of upends it in a kind of unusual, kind of a fun way in that book. And so I really think that for him, it's about like, as to your point, Sean, here's the tropes. I've got a detective who he's not even really a detective, right? He's actually a teacher. And he, a lot of his books like uh, Cadogan or Cadogan is not in the case of the Gilded Fry, but it's a fly, but it's a different writer who is a playwright. And so he's got all these things that he kind of just plays with and he kind of upends and flips around. And that's, I think, for him, what's enjoyable about it. And for me, that's what's enjoyable about reading it. So I don't know that I would even try to go to his other work and try to come up with... He has books. He has a whole book of short stories, which is kind of... Which are fun as well, but they're not... They're not about the puzzle any more than Woodhouse books are actually about people getting in long, healthy relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Or the value of the English aristocracy. <laughs> Unless it's with their butler or their aunt, right? Right, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. The last. <laughs> that's right. And, but only Jeeves is, he's the only butler that really sticks it out with most people. <laughs> that's right. All the other butlers in the stories are going from, you know, uh, boss to drone boss. Drone to drone. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, anything else you guys want to add on this one? No. No. Uh, Susan did ask, what, would I recommend reading other Crispin novels? If so, which ones? Yes, the answer is yes. And that's, I would do Gilded Fly next. Okay, here's from John. I imagine some mysteries are not worth rereading once you know the outcome of the puzzle. So A, will you be rereading this one? B, what's the most rereadable mystery? And C, do you have a mystery that's been disappointing on rereading and rewatching? And I was really excited to discuss this because I feel like we could go, it's very, we might have some disagreements here. So let's, yeah. let's do A, will you be rereading this one? Will you ever reread this book again? I, I will reread will. this book. Yeah. Okay. 
great. I will. Yeah, def- this is like a sit in the couch, drink a glass of wine after a yeah. long day. Like, yeah, that's right. I've been thinking too much about Boethius, and I just need some British <laughs> jokes flown at me. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, They're gonna get the wrong idea about Boethius. We should read. He's not full of Everybody British jokes. Should. That's pretty. Yeah. You know. <laughs> there are no jokes in Boethius. <laughs> um. Okay. Fair enough. But does that mean that Boethius didn't have a sense of humor? Right. Well, he was in prison. He was under sentence of death. He was, I mean, jokes weren't on his, mind. on his mind. He was looking yeah. for the consolation of philosophy. Yeah. So she's I think he had a sense of humor, though. That's because there were no British novels, though, to right. Mm-hmm. Right. console him in his time of despair. Which now makes me wonder if maybe the British the British mystery is causing us to not have more books like the Constellation of Philosophy because now people don't have to be consoled by philosophy when facing death. Oh man! Although we but we did get like all of Solzhenitsyn's and Dostoevsky's books, so yeah, right. And though the British mystery was around then, so anyway, there's not really any Russian comedy books that I know of. It's true. A lot of snow. So, um, all right. Yeah. Anyway, what's the back most, to this. Yes, I will reread this. Book. What's the most rereadable <laughs> mystery in your opinion? And then, did you have a mystery? That, well, let's do the first one. What's the most rereadable? Heidi, you, you you've probably read yeah, all the so Agatha Christie's, have, all the Sayers. I I mean, I was gonna say I have a bad habit, but I don't know if it's a bad habit. I have a habit. I'm gonna leave the adjective blank <laughs> of rereading Agatha Christie novels, like ad nauseum. I've <laughs> and for me, it's Murder in the Vicarage. That's the one. I've That's read that one. one like huh? That's the most rereadable. Times. Well, I don't know why. Because I'll just go to my shelf and I'll be like, what do I want to read? I'm tired. And then I will pick Murder at the Vicarage many times in a row. <laughs> I've also reread The Man in the Brown Suit a lot of times, and that's a terrible book. But that's I a, keep, yeah, it's a weird that's, one. But I Vicarage keep is a marble, right? That one. Yeah, it's the first marble. Um, and like I like the funny ones because she yeah. has some serious ones, and then yeah, yeah. there's like the ones that are the puzzle. Like I don't reread Roger Ackroyd very mm-hmm. often because the whole point of that book is the puzzle. So once you know, you just know. Um, that's my but, answer for but, C. Yeah, for the most disappointing so, rereads. But yeah, but it's yeah. great. Like everybody, that should so be everybody's yeah. first. Christy, I think, because yeah. it's so good. Um, but it's not super rereadable because the puzzle is the point. But yeah. when the characters are the point, or the comedy is the point, or or if there's like a heavy atmosphere to it, or if it's just like a satisfying like plot development. Those are great. Sean, do you have one? I do. Uh, I have two, and they're different. In fact, David, you asked uh, on the Substack chat at some point in the last week or so. Yeah, I'm going to share some of these here in the show, too. Yeah. Yeah, the the, for modern or contemporary and classic mysteries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think my choices for both categories would be my favorite rereadable mysteries. So the first is any... Any of Chesterton's mysteries. Uh, I agree I, with that. I, the Father Brown stories are so rereadable. They're so rereadable. They get better every time, even. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, the way that he shapes his to puzzles. think a little bit more than you do with reading Agatha Christie. Like you have to actually yeah, engage I think that's with your true. mind. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, but I think that's what makes it satisfying to, mm-hmm. to reread. Uh, and the other is The Name of the Rose. 
uh, which Echo. I find so so enjoyable, even though uh, something is lost after you know the secret to the mystery. But you know, I've never read uh, that book. You've never read that book. We should Next read it year on, on the, the show. show. <laughs> we really should read Next that book. Next year on the, on the show, show that we've already that's planned right. out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a next, great one. Next year, we actually next, don't have three. I don't think we have a true mystery on the show next year. Heidi, have you read mm-hmm. it in the name of the rose? Mm-hmm. I okay. have, but I've not reread it. I've only okay. read it once. Okay. What are the dwarves going to do with that dragon? That's the mystery. <laughs> that is a very, very good book. You know, that is like Kristen Lovren's daughter. Um, that's one of those books that if you read it, you will know what it's like to think like a medieval. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, you know, I also have not have not read Murder at the Vicarage, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fix Please that. Please read it. So yeah, he's read it enough for both of you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe all three of us. Have it's you read that one, Sean? Uh, I have. I would so, think just once. So I realized recently that when I was a kid, you know, I read a ton of Agatha Christie novels then, and I got through a, most like a lot of the lists, you know, in high school and middle school and college. But when I was younger, I was major flawed 13-year-old version of me. I was not as interested in Miss Marple as I was in Poirot. And so I just kind of mostly read the Poirot ones. And so I didn't get through that many of the Miss Marple ones. But now that I'm an adult and I'm not a child, I will now <laughs> I'm okay now with a female detective. <laughs> no, it wasn't, I don't yeah. think it was that. It was just that, you know, I yeah, just like Poirot. It's so you, different. Yeah. And like when the you're... vibe's completely different. Right. It is yeah, a different yeah. vibe. Uh, I... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the puzzle-wise, puzzle The Mirror Cracked, which is a oh, yeah. marble mystery, yeah. is just phenomenal. Like, oh, yeah. It's yeah, that almost might be better her, than that. That might be her best puzzle. That might yeah. be her best puzzle. Yeah. I think that's one that I read back then, but I don't remember very well. So I, I want to go back and read it. Now, it's, what, it's like Ackroyd I read Probably the first, that's probably the first one I read. I was probably 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever I was. I uh, got it from the library. And you know, those like paperbacks that were like the white, small little paperbacks. Yes. And I would get them oh, yeah. like five those at a time from have. the library. <laughs> and uh, I remember reading that one vividly and being like, what? But then, you know, I've, I've gone back to it a couple times and tried to reread it. And okay, when spoiler you know, you alert know. here. I'm just going to say, I'm not going to give the reveal away, but I don't, but just if you skip ahead 30 seconds, if you don't want to know anything about murder of Roger Ackroyd, <laughs> the point of view being so tied to the puzzle makes it unrereadable for me. Yeah. Because what yeah. makes it so fun is the revelation connected to who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. And so I find it kind of, it's like, I don't know. It, I, it's like you want the mystery, the magic kind of is lost when you're, not being swept along and then it gets dumped on you, which doesn't make right. it a bad book. It just makes it maybe less rereadable. I think I actually think the ABC murders is one of hers is pretty rereadable because you're mm-hmm. like out and I about agree. in the English countryside and you know, um uh that that one's kind of got the atmosphere. Yeah, I think that's right. And then there were none as rereadable. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, another atmosphere that's one. A dark one. Like yeah. that's yeah. that's it's I really, mean some of them are brutal. comic, but that one's not. So um that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would even tonight. pick. Yeah. Uh, I would pick um, uh, "Ordeal by Innocence." Love that one. Which that one's again, such a good puzzle too. It's it's a great puzzle, and once you've read it, you know the solution. But uh, there's so much psychological drama <laughs> that makes it uh, worth revisiting. 
Well, and the red herrings in that one are like a masterpiece. And it's just fun, even as as someone paying attention to how things are written, to reread some of those and how she misdirects. I was going to say that's one of the that's one of the joys of rereading. Once you know the puzzle, is you can you can look at how she's crafting the mystery and how when you you see the misdirection for what it is, and you can appreciate the craft there. Do you what what would you guys? What do you think of the haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson's sort of haunted house mystery? Oh, yeah. Does that qualify for this? Because I think that's a very rereadable one. It's all about atmosphere. And it's yeah. a little creepy. It's not yeah. like a detective so. story, though. But right. it is certainly mystery. It has a mystery element to it. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Turn of the Screw is the same. Like, it yeah. is, it's horror, but it's also mystery. And mm-hmm. it's the puzzle of that is really interesting because he's playing with us psychologically. And mm-hmm. so you get duped. And then yeah. to go back and see it from the true perspective in both of those books yeah. are like just very satisfying, I think. Uh, none, of, none of us have mentioned Rebecca, which I think mm. is pre- pretty rereadable. That's yeah. true. Because um, yeah. you miss things along the way. Do you think that's a mystery? Or is it just the idea of like... Well, it's not a detective story, but yeah. it's, it's kind of a detective yeah. story. Yeah, But it is a mystery, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's kind of like a noir type thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? You know, speaking of noir and detectives, The Big Sleep is extremely rereadable. I've never read oh. that. Oh. But the same... Spe- you guys, have you read that, Sean? Yeah. So the great thing about The Big Sleep is that I have read it several times. I have no idea what happens. Like the plot is completely <laughs> obtuse yeah. and the purposefully so... And it's like the it's like the movie is too because the same really way with the Maltese curious. Falcon. Like I, I yeah. couldn't tell you, I probably couldn't recreate the. the so plot every time you point. read it, you're reminded of stuff, or you notice something you didn't notice before. It's very, I would say, convoluted, but like on purpose. Like you feel like you're in the hands of a master, not someone who's lost the threads. Yeah. Um, and those are very like you know 1930s American hot boiled mysteries, but high level. Like Raymond Chandler, the man could really write. Um, yeah, that's right. So that's that's probably one of the ones that I would say. Is, Do you guys think Sayers is rereadable? Yeah, some there of them. Some of them, yeah, yeah, but, but not for the not for the mystery usually. Yeah, more like hanging out with Peter Whimsey or whatever. Yeah, like I I love the Nine Tailors, but it's mostly because I think the bells are cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's so a couple I haven't of read them all of them, to be like, honest. I can't like the one about the train schedules. Which one's that? Oh. Uh, uh, I don't remember the title. I don't remember that one. Yeah, I don't remember which oh, one that is. We, it yeah. just is like. Yeah, I wouldn't read t- it again. Yeah, you know who I think the um, uh, the Daglish books by um, P.D. James are pretty rereadable. I haven't read all of them. I like P.D. James, but I, I've I never read reread P.D. James. So. Maybe I would like it. You know what's? Uh, I've read "Death Comes to Pemberley" a couple times. I was going to say I've <laughs> only read I've read Pemberley and Children of Men. That's all I've. I haven't read any of James's. You know, true. You haven't read novels. the da- Oh man, though they're good. Mm-mm. You they're would good. like those. Yeah. Um. So which is the one that you really don't like, Heidi Gaudy Knight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was some chatter on the socials about yeah, that. Yeah, you got but some support I can live for with that, that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I got some support and some backlash, yeah. which that's cool. Like I, again, it's a preference issue for me. And I don't know. I have like a thing about authors who write like their fantasies into stories. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not that into that. So, but. um, 
You mean because she was the idea that she was in love with with uh, Lord Peter with her own creation? <laughs> yeah, that's I don't know. Like I think that's an interesting psychological thing, but I don't know if that's my favorite way well, to write. It's but I love Sayers. Like I don't I don't want to sound negative about Sayers. She's a genius. Yeah, she, she's really important. She was working out in those novels her own kind of hangups about being a woman genius at a certain time in history. And, um, and, and I, I think that that's a worthwhile thing to do. Um, but I just, it just was never my favorite. So Gaudi and I, it's interesting because that's 1935. So she had Busman's honeymoon, a love story with detective interruptions. That That was the last one or 1937. Um, but that, but that's adapted from a play she wrote in 36. So Gaudi and I is towards the end. So at that point, so whose body is 23 that's she's 13 14 years of working out her uh her these these things that you're saying she was working out so maybe it, she just just didn't come to the right conclusions in Gaudi night and then she fixes them in busman's honeymoon <laughs> well yeah Busman's you know yeah yeah harriet and peter whimsy finally get together so that, that helps too i guess yeah by the end yeah and do you guys have one that doesn't i mean i said i think Ackroyd. I don't. I mean, I know people love that book. I really do like the book. It just as a mm-hmm. reread for rereadability, I find it a little bit like it doesn't drag draw me very deep into it. I, I don't I, find yeah. any Sherlock Holmes stories very agreed. Hmm. Even how to the Baskervilles? Uh, even that would be the the highest on the list. I mean, there's some cool atmospheric stuff, but it's so it hinges so much on the reveal always uh and the reveals are always are often so technical that uh yeah that's, yeah that's uh, interesting yeah. One, one and done i yep, he came down it was a midget who came down the chimney okay like, i didn't see that one coming up but i'll always know now then he's gonna yeah. shoot someone with a poison dart <laughs> that's right. sherlock holmes was gonna be mine as well i just think that those are they're just for exact exactly the reason that you said. They're so detailed and they're so scientific. Um, that I and and I think that for me, this is just for me, there's a lack of compelling characters. Like the story is so much like the plot so much. Besides the point. Sherlock, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that's what I mean. So I, I think, no, I think, I think Sherlock adaptations have done a lot to make mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes seem I more appealing. just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, but that's one of the reasons why people think they love Sherlock Holmes. No, I was going to say are more forgiving about, you right. know, you update Sherlock Holmes to our times or whatever, yeah, because right. it's, it really is just about like having a genius detective who solves something that's technical. And yeah. then you can update that. Whereas I bet if somebody made Lord Peter Whimsy into like 2023, there'd be a lot of people out there who were like, come on, that's just like, he belongs in the era that he belongs right. in. Even Agatha Christie occasionally gets semi-updated, but not really. Like all these Amazon yeah. shows, all the BBC they're stuff, they're pieces, almost always yeah. period pieces. Um, did, side note, did you guys hear that uh, it looks like the next Bond movie is so Christopher Nolan is in discussions right. to do a Bond movie that takes place in the period of the stories. Nah, and I have been waiting for Bond for them to make period pieces. Oh yeah, since they were period, they were not they were made then since they stopped being period because pieces. people period, now yeah. love period pieces. And like England in the fifties and fifties 
would be an incredible setting. It's pretty cool. If you could pull it off with like the way you can do. Oh, I feel very ambivalent about Christopher Nolan doing James Bond. Whatever, Heidi, whatever. Well, I'm ambivalent about everything Christopher Nolan does, most, mostly, like uh, other than one or two movies. So, guys, where's I your, like where's Christopher your Nolan. hope? Where's your optimism? I like awesome. Christopher Nolan, but like for him to take an actual heroic character. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. Oh, oh. Mm. Is James Bond an actual heroic yeah, character? that's the thing. But, uh, but he's a Superman. When, well, maybe not a hero, because he doesn't necessarily have the moral element. But, like, okay. do we really... Like, the last James Bond movie was... I hated it. Mm. Because it just undercuts... Uh, I don't know about... I don't know. Oh, I'm boy. ambivalent. I'll have to be... We have to do an episode on that last James Bond movie because I just yeah wow Um, I I read a lot of those have you guys read those books I read a number of them Mm -hmm. a couple um a couple of them are actually speaking of rereadable there's a couple that are very rereadable yeah this um, is true from Russia with Love in particular um and I'm hoping they do one of those you know not the Casino Royale that one's actually not as good but um and they already did an incredible Casino Royale movie okay anyway we are way off here. (laughs) <laughs> um, oh, we're just answering the question. That's yeah, true. That's, right. that's true. James Bond went to Oxford. We're talking about Oxford. Uh, it's, it, it connects. Uh, do you guys? Uh, how do you drink your martinis? By the way, extra dirty, shaken or stirred? <laughs> um, Absolutely stirred. Yeah, shaken martini is ridiculous. Yeah, James Bond is a buffoon when it comes to his cocktails. Yeah. I'm convinced of it. Yeah, although he he's was, a little, he doesn't always. Uh, drink them that way in the novels. So uh, no, I know that's credit. something that yeah. like they really took off with uh, because it became a, the whole thing. It became like yeah, the version right. of a 1960s meme. Yeah. Um, are you guys big yeah. martini people? I like martinis. I, I am yeah. a big. And martini I really do person, like yeah. my martinis extra dirty. That's actually true. Oh no, we take I your like word a, for it. Yeah, <laughs> I like a Gibson. Being provocative. Yes. <laughs> I like a Gibson too. Yeah. Nice. But, for the people yeah. who don't know, would you like to describe the difference? Uh. A, a Gibson is usually on the drier side, and it has a cocktail all or onion instead of an olive garnish. But you don't put vodka in your martinis, do you? Yes, he does. It depends on not in a Gibson. I was going to say, yeah, if you you can't call it a martini, then yeah. If put, anyway. But if it was like, well, like speaking of James Bond, if it was a Vesper or something, you know, you that, that's true. But they had to invent a new drink because anyway, because vodka got popular. <laughs> that's um, right. Okay. Um, here's one. Now we're far afield. Did anyone else get the, get the impression that Miss Snaith's being hit by a bus was no accident? I kept waiting to find out that she had been murdered as well. Me too. Prob- probably by Rossiter, but it was never addressed. So was this just yeah. another misdirection? I, I think you- it was. I think it was a misdirection. I think the implication was that she died a natural death, mm-hmm. uh, or I mean, she wasn't murdered. It wasn't a natural death, but she died in a way that. Um, that she was afraid of dying in a certain way. She didn't die that way, but she created all this havoc in the wake of her right. death. Right. It was a beautiful, dramatic irony, yeah, because she had done so much out of fear of being murdered, and the like the stereotypical, unpredictable, natural death is to be hit by a bus. Yeah. Uh, so I, I thought it was funny. I thought, uh, uh, yeah, a, a great joke layered in there. Oh, it was better of, that it was a true accident because I thought yes. to myself, I wonder if this was a murder. If so, yeah, I'll be somebody disappointed because like the funny, or... it's so funny that you got hit by a bus. Yeah. 
Just like in Meet Joe Black, that scene when he gets hit by a bus is like hilarious. <laughs> this is a very serious movie, Heidi. Get it yes. together. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, if that scene had come in the middle of the movie, it wouldn't have worked. But right at the beginning, it's perfect. You don't really know what kind of movie it's supposed to be yet. Right. And uh, it is so funny. I yeah, can't help it's it. It's great. Sometimes I watch it on YouTube. <laughs> I was about to confess the same thing. <laughs> And I now we have to apologize to everybody who's I'm about sorry. to go do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every day for the next week. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I forgot to say that actually The Moving Toy Shop is an incredibly rereadable book because I've reread it multiple times and I just want right. to throw that in there. Okay, yeah, here's one from someone who just goes by S on Substack. And first, there is a it's quote me. here from the book. It's well, it's not you. Quote, it is difficult to put into words what exactly it roused in Fenn, since it is not a common emotion in mankind, and since it lies at the basis of Fenn's personality. I suppose that as near as anything would be to say that it was a kind of passionless sense of justice and of proportion, a deeply rooted objection to waste, end quote. So here the author, the question says, here the author used the first person for the first time. Um, what the heck? Okay, so there's, a, there's this question here, what the heck does pause, P-A-W-S, mean in Fenn's usage? I don't actually know. Um, but the question here is, I'm a little bit unsure of exactly what the question is asking, but do you think that this is meant to be like a stereotype or an archetype of a detective? And does that make Fenn less of a realistic character than the poet? I guess the poet, meaning like poet, the poet in general, not, not necessarily a particular poet. Finn is not at all a realistic character. I've never met anybody like Finn. I kind of don't want to. Like he is he is made for the books. Right. And he's bigger than life. And that's the way that he needs to be. And that that sentence, I really loved. I really loved the use of the word proportion next to justice. I thought that was great. Um, and I think that that's what gives us his like moral drive right what he's actually fighting for other than just solving crimes because he's smart and keeps coming across crimes um but he has some kind of internal moral motivation uh but that's not it's it's not harped upon like right now, we like big central characters, anti-heroes who have like some kind of tragic backstory that's motivating. Um, they're working out their psychological issues. This is how detectives always are in modern movies. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. But Fenn's not like that. Um, he's a very flat, not round character. And that's the way he should be and ought to be and is supposed to be. And it's entirely intentional. And I think it's what makes the book great. That's also why you have your you have Kat Cadogan. Yeah. So this got me thinking, what detectives in fiction, like especially like golden age classic, like the big detectives that we've all we all know about, do you think would quote would we we would categorize as realistic? Like I, I'd be curious to know how you Hardly think about this. Because it seems like kind of part of the <laughs> point, right? Like Poirot's not, Poirot's Whimsy's not. not. Who's Father the mo- Brown's I mean, not. I was going to say, is Father Brown maybe the most? Sherlock Holmes definitely He's, he's got to be up there, yeah. Sean, do you have a thought? Like, who would you say is the most uh, realistic? Jeeves? That That is hard. <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely not realistic. Jeeves is not, uh, yeah. 
Although I just thought that if somebody were to write a series of mysteries uh, where Jeeves and Wooster, like Jeeves and Wooster mysteries, uh, I would I would eat that up. Um, Jeeves, Jeeves, I'd get that'd be pretty funny. uh, I yeah, I think I think Father Brown would be pretty high up there. Uh, He's more humane in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. I think that. I do think that William in the name of the rose is fairly believable uh, for his, his flaws as well as his strengths. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder if it's just something about the the genre and the type that uh, these are unbelievable people. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Because these are usually mysteries that wouldn't get solved in real life. Right. Right. Maybe cad file. <laughs> But even yeah, that, okay. not really, because yeah. it's the 12th century. <laughs> but this is, I mean, this question gets to why I don't want Christopher Nolan to make James Bond. <laughs> like, leave him alone. Let him just be not a... Let him be gritty and real. Yes. Yeah. Just yeah. let him be, like, suave and sophisticated and get all the women and escape <laughs> all of the dangers. And yeah, it's like I suspect that I suspect <laughs> that one of the reasons they want him to do it is because so they'll put it in the period, and then what they want is like they want it to be glossy and shiny and hip, like yeah, right. it to be a big budget type of you know he can do an extravaganza like it'd be very cinematic. It's not like if you had Scorsese do it and it was like all about you kind of debating with his lapsed Anglicanism, <laughs> right. That's exactly right. But no, but Christopher Nolan will make it so that James Bond has some kind of like nihilistic despair. He will. He will. If it's possible. <laughs> he wouldn't be the first. Um, <laughs> he was perfect uh, for Oppenheimer, but yeah. James Bond alone. Um, that, we that. need that. We need that bigger than life. Like this guy just like knows stuff and just and is and can do things that ordinary people can't do yeah, and isn't right. impacted by the passions that are uh so um crisscrossed and complex and having to sort through the motivations of getting to who the murderer is in any kind of given mystery story right like poro's never impacted but he's uh, what did they call him papa poro come to me i'm your father confessor <laughs> and all like the young beautiful women confide in him and the men trust him and um and then that's what makes him work is that he's not ever entangled in this complicated entanglement that is the murder and we need detectives like that in order to be like the um the quiet heart of the story so that all the storms can break around them but they're not impacted by it Uh, the detective we need not the detective we deserve right (laughs) and that's i mean that's just not realistic and if it and and that's that's part of what makes them either charming or successful in the um in the genre okay um let's do a couple more here if we can recommendations here let's look at some of these um detectives that other people mentioned i would are not detectives but stories i would recommend people check out you know go to substack click the chat button if you want to check this out either on the app or on the browser on the closereads.substack.com um 
<clears throat> so I want to read some of these and you, the people recommended, I'd l- just chime in if you've read any of these or even if you haven't read and that sounds interesting. So we've got uh, Mystery in White by J. Jefferson Farjan. Have you, have you read those? Classic? That's a classic no. book, apparently. No. Have you read The Thursday Murder Clubs by Richard Osman? Yes. Do you I'm like not. those? Yeah. I think they're pretty fun. Ellis yeah. Peters, someone mentions. That's more recent, but also not contemporary. That's the CAD, CAD file books. Mm-hmm. Janet mentions Death Comes for the Deconstructionist by Daniel Taylor. That's by Slant Books, I believe. Um, reminiscent of the 20th century Catholic novelist, she says. Hmm. Um, I'm not he's not Catholic, but has the sensibilities of O'Connor and Percy. Sounds like something from th- that all of us would like. Have you guys read The Westing Game? Yes. No. Uh, yeah, I that's read it one with my Aubrey kids mentions. a little while ago. That's a very oh. good. That one's very good. Uh, Sayers, Peters, Chesterton, Elsie mentions. Uh, Josephine Tay. Have you all read Josephine uh-huh. Tay? Yeah, oh, yeah, I like Josephine Tay. And we've kicked around the idea of doing we Josephine have, Tay yeah. on the podcast, but never gotten to it. But those are good. Those are rereadable, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read all of them. Um, Patricia Wentworth's Miss Silver series. Have you? Re- I've only read maybe no, one of those. Mm-hmm. I've never read those. I have a couple of people who come into the shop that love those. Um, Melanie says, sorry, Heidi, but Gaudy Knight is one of my best beloved. So <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. Like I said, people are going to take my intellectual woman card away from me for not loving Gaudy Night. So all of you intellectual women out there who love it and identify with it, you're probably right and I'm probably wrong. So I'll give you that. Um, there is She She also mentions, though, uh, Laurie King's The Beekeeper's Apprentice, which is a really interesting series. Um, it's The idea is... There's someone named Mary Russell, young Mary Russell meets an older retired Sherlock Holmes. And they're those are pretty fun. I know Nancy, who works first at the shop, loves those. And we sell those a bunch at the the store. They take place so, so they take place during Sherlock Holmes' time, but it's kind of like a female detective situation going on with a lot of humor. Um Busman's Honeymoon, someone mentions, Daughter of Time, uh, the Horowitz books, which I've uh I've mentioned before. I love the the Word is Murder series. Um Let's see. Has anybody mentioned anything here? Oh, the the Galbraith books more recently. Those are um, a little more gritty. Those are written by J.K. Rowling um, under her pen name, Galbraith. Have you read those, either of you? No. Mm -mm. I'm surprised you haven't read them, Heidi, given that... I'm surprised, too. I passed them in the dollar bin a number of times and just not... (laughs) No, I would like to read them. I am not disdaining them. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. What about um, Louise Penny's books, Inspector Gamache? I don't know those either. Those take place in Quebec. Oh, and there's a bunch of those. She's a good writer. Those are pretty good. Um, I've only read one or two of them. Another mention for The Beekeeper's Apprentice. Oh, somebody mentions Tim Hellerman's Navajo Mysteries. Those are good. If anybody's oh. ever read those, it's like they take place on a, I think, is it, is it actually on a reservation? I can't remember. Chesterton, me mentioned. Oh, here's one that's fun. John Wilson, who longtime editor of Books and Culture, he uh, loves these books, and they're the the Chet and Bernie mysteries by Spencer Quinn. Have you heard about these? So they're like no. very comedic. They're every title is a pun, and so it's a detective and his dog. So the first book is called Dog on It, D O G O N I T, Dog on It. Nice. One's called Paw on Order. One's called To Fetch a Thief. One is called Heart of Barkness. I mean, they're like. <laughs> pretty they're meant to be comedies um and it. like 
as this person here says, they are they are gimmicky and the book equivalent of a box of junior mints. Delightful. Nice. <laughs> um, box Wilkie, of junior somebody mints. mentions great. here Wilkie Collins, the woman in white of the moonstone, and I'm surprised that none of us have mentioned those oh, yet. Those are oh yeah. Now I just want to mention there is a um publisher. They're basically just British British crime classics, I think is what it's called. And they've been bringing back a lot of mysteries that were lesser known. And they do it. If you like puzzles, sometimes the ones that are built around puzzles heavily are less strong on the detectives because they spend more time building out the puzzle than building out the detective. And so a lot of those, they get sometimes less remembered because they become less like memorable. Yeah. But some of the books in that series are great locked room mysteries. Like how could this possibly have happened in this room that was locked? You know, like the kind of thing that the moving toy shop is playing with here. Um, there's so there's a bunch of uh john dixon carr wrote is a, is a really good author in, in in that genre and they um they have one that just came out called death of a bookseller which is about what it sounds like they've got one called murder after christmas which is exactly what it sounds like as well <laughs> uh, but they all take place in like either london or some small english town and something goes awry and there's some some puzzle almost always there's some kind of puzzle um and many of them just it's kind of like they're great writers. Um, why did they not get as remembered? Sometimes that's hard to say, right? Um, sometimes it takes good luck to become as famous as Agatha Christie or Sayers or whoever. So definitely check those out. Okay, before we go, I wanted to ask you guys, what about this book? Now that you've, you know, you, we finished it a week or a week or so ago, we talked about it. What is it that you most, like if someone says to you, why should I read The Moving Toy Shop? Or why should I read Edmund Crispin? I know, I guess you guys haven't read all of them. So we'll just say The Moving Toy Shop. What would you answer? Like, what would be your response to the thing that's for you most memorable or a week later, you're still kind of like enjoying about it? How do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's going to be the lighthearted literary banter. For sure. Yeah, the jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that the <charm>. comedy. <laughs> yep. Exactly. But the comedy, the, I, I love it that it's, that it is so literary. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it, it's smart. And that, right. that I think would be just, that's just fun. Yeah. It's not, it's comedy. That's not just slapstick. It's There's not like pretentious, a, you, but it is smart. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Sean. Anything uh, you got? Mine would be along those same lines that it's, it's such an enjoyable tribute to the genre uh, it's it's written with an affection for detective fiction, but also with the aim of uh, making the old things new in the genre. Uh, that's that's what I have enjoyed about it. While I will revisit it, David? I think I. I mean, for me, it's the it's the amount how much I laugh when I read it. You know, yeah, like yeah. What, what both of you were saying. As someone who loves mysteries. I think you're both you're both on it. Like the the things that you recognize and that it kind of like twists or subverts in a funny way. I laugh at that, and I laugh at jokes about Shakespeare and Jane Austen, and you know the bad guy being a Jane Austen fan, and you know all just, <laughs> stuff so like great. that. Even as someone who thinks Pride and Prejudice might be the greatest, like the fifth greatest book ever written, I don't know. Um, it's up there. So I just get a lot of pleasure out of reading it and because it's not about the puzzle it you know i could read i could read it all again tonight and laugh 
when I know the jokes are coming. It's like, okay, it's like, <laughs> you, you know how people like have a comedy movie that you watch oh, yeah. over you and over again? You pre-laugh. You laugh in anticipation yeah, of the it's, joke. It's, so for some people, it's Dumb and Dumber or Step Brothers or Anchorman. Or for some people, it's like an old, it's like Some Like It Hot or, you know, I don't know, whatever you, whatever, whatever movie you want to talk about. It's it, Or even Shakespeare comedies, right? Like, you know, yeah. you're about to get the joke that Beatrice says about Benedict's mouth being like, what does he, what does she say? He's... I can't even, I don't even know the joke. So I, I'm just the one that popped into my head. I don't know, but there's so <laughs> many great lines between them. So you, so you know that it's about to come and it's about to happen. And that's, you're laughing before you even get there. And when you get there, it's just as, a, it's just as enjoyable. And I think that's what this book kind of does for mm-hmm. me. So yep. that's why I liked reading it with you guys this time. Me too. It was so fun. It was just fun to do a fun book. Yeah. It was yeah. fun to do a fun book. You know, and, and of course... It's not surprising that pretty much all the questions are either a, like two questions were about this book and then most of the questions were about the genre. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty interesting. And, I, and it's not surprising because he's playing with so many things in the genre. Other than like Woodhouse, are there other books for you guys that you read just because they're funny? Oh, I don't know. Uh, the, the Confederacy book... of Dunces, Sean. I was going to say... <laughs> Uh, that I was going to get to that because that is absolutely it. I, I 100% read Confederacy of Dunces uh, more often than probably I should admit on the air uh, because I can't get enough of it. But uh, the the book um, Three Men in a Boat, Jerome K. Jerome, you know this oh, book? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that is a, that. Uh, it's a it's a a really uh, enjoyable humorous uh, little book. But is- mostly it's it's Woodhouse. So one of my favorite things is um, if you Google, I thought I was thinking about this the other day. If you Google the funniest books, <laughs> it's like most of the lists have like, it's just all, it's a whole bunch of Woodhouse, <laughs> which goes to show that a hundred years on, he's still, people still laugh at him. I do yeah. think even in children's books, sometimes I mean, they're often very funny. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are kids books, picture books that I'll read to my kids that are, that are hilarious. You guys think Don Quixote's funny? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at times it has its moments. But I wouldn't read it just for fun. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't go to it to laugh. Uh, I read but there are Calvin some desperately and funny Hobbes times. sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. But mostly we got such a such a it's because you got a good sense of humor and you can tell what's actually funny. I love <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. I do I do read I read some pretty dark stuff though for like dark humor and I laugh yeah. through them. So, you know. Yeah, I some of Evelyn Waugh's novels actually I will return to. Well, some of them are actively comic. The, yeah, they really are. Some well, of them Pride, really Jane Austen too though. Yeah, this I is I mean, true. I laugh my way through Pride and Prejudice even though it's got mm-hmm. a lot of like, you know, heavy stuff in it. Yeah. Mostly <sighs> if I just need a laugh, I watch TV. Honestly. Fair enough. Yeah. You should but, be you should get yeah. in. You, <laughs> you should, should read more. <laughs> yeah, I should read more. That's true. There's never a that's there's never what, a time not that that's not say. true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think books have a way, like it's very, very hard to I think one of the reasons why comedy often tends towards the stage or or movies now and TV, but for a long yeah. time it was the stage, is because it's so hard to t- to set up and and pay off a joke just through language. 
Right. Humor is so verbal and and embodied. And and physical. And you can, you know, how a lot of jokes just about people getting hit in the face by things, right? So, (laughs) or falling or whatever. And that's hard to pull off. So like Woodhouse is maybe just is an incredible genius because of his ability to to consistently set up and then pay off jokes uh, at such a rate. So anyway, let's wrap this episode up. We got to go record about Kristen Lavin's daughter, which is going to be a different sort of conversation. So thanks to everybody for reading The Moving Toy Shop with us. Uh, Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. For Heidi White and for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.